Okay, guys, welcome to lecture series 1-F. This is actually going to be the last lecture in the uh, lecture 1 series. We're going to be closing out with our, our study of uh, the sand bushmen and deciphering ancient minds. And uh, from here, we're going to be moving over into the mind in the cave. So in, in this video, uh, what we're going to be digging into is uh, a final a, a final few pieces here of sand bushmen belief and practice that... Uh, are really going to help us to better understand not just the rock art and the traditions and beliefs of the sand bushmen, but really uh, prehistoric belief systems in general. And we're going to see a few references here that connect with uh, with future events. And you know, some some of you might be thinking, man, you know, we're really taking a, a lot of time here to study the sand bushmen in a in a great deal of detail, right? It might seem almost a little bit superfluous. But uh, you'll see as we move up into the other lectures here how in many ways this, this lays for us a, an incredibly firm foundation on which we can build a lot of our other ideas. And this is really going to serve as that bedrock where, uh, where we're going to be able to, you know, jump off of here and then better understand many different religious traditions. By understanding the roots of religion, in some sense, we better understand religion as a whole. So, to get started with here, we're going to talk about the role of lions within sand belief. It says here, uh, for the sand, the lion was much more than a dangerous predator. It was fearfully associated with the spirit realm. Megan Beasley says that for the Juhoan, sand, lions are the ancient dark enemies of human beings. And Elizabeth Marshall Thomas found that the Juhoanzi treated the lions and the gods in somewhat the same way. If the Juhuanzi chanced upon a lion, they addressed it as nya, or big, or old, a term they use when speaking of the gods. And Zam call lions uh, sa-na, hoken, e, which I'm probably butchering that, but which literally means uh, things whose head is black or darkness is identical with. So another way of putting this is to say that for the for the Juhuanzi, the lion is a thing whose head is darkness itself. And, uh, you know, this really, you know, for those of you who are already familiar with some of these ideas, uh, it's pretty clear that the Sand Bushmen understand the lion to be the, the, the shadow archetype. This is really, uh, in some sense, the devil incarnate for, for the Sand Bushmen. Really powerful beliefs. They say here, uh, moreover, the nocturnal lion was believed to have the supernatural ability to cause the sun to set and thus to bring darkness in which it could conceal itself. The San also believed that lions could turn themselves into men by putting their tail over their head. Mysteriously, Hankosa, Han Hankoso uh, told Lucy Lloyd, when the lion is still coming, his head's reflection comes in sight before him. It looks like a real lion. His head's reflection it is with which he deceives us. It's a very mysterious passage, and uh, there's even a, a section of dialogue in the book trying to, to figure out what is meant by this. But I think, you know, it's it's clear that what uh, Hancaso is emphasizing here is that uh, the lions are spiritual beings in in the minds of the sand bushmen. I mean, they're not just animals. They're They're more than that. Uh, they can send a sort of phantom version or a reflection of themselves ahead of themselves uh, to deceive the Bushmen. 
The other side of the coin is people, more precisely shamans, turning into lions. The San believe that any lion encountered in the Veld could be a transformed shaman, especially if it behaved in a strange way. A lion, or perhaps a shaman, could enter into a man and cause sickness. Another shaman, who was healing a sick man, snored the lion out of him. When this happened, the healer himself became like a lion and tried to bite people. Then people give him buchu to smell, and he sneezes the lion out. Now, you know, this is really, uh, I, I gotta admit, it's, it's really incredible, because if you know about European tradition, right, you know that, uh, for the San Bushmen, or for, for medieval Europeans, it was believed that sickness was largely transmitted through smell. Uh, you know, if you ever look at those images of the old plague doctors, they have those bird-headed masks on, and you would stuff those with uh, scented herbs to block the smell of sickness, and it was believed that that would prevent disease. And uh, we've already seen how, for the San Bushmen, the smell of the of the shaman's blood uh, can ward off sickness. And, and we're seeing here how... You know, when a person becomes ill, it's as a consequence of perhaps being possessed or or uh, plagued with the spirit of a lion, right? That the spirit of a lion has come and infected the man. And, uh, of course, again, this is very close to medieval ideas. But the thing which really stands out for me is this emphasis of the sneezing the lion out. Uh, still to this day, when someone sneezes, we say, oh, uh, God bless you, right? Or bless you. And the reason for that is because in medieval times it was believed that when a person sneezed they were they were casting out a demon they were you know expelling a demon from themselves so it's incredible you know to see that kind of continuity across you know vast distances it's it's really fascinating it says here indeed one shaman uh, killed a settler's ox while on a nocturnal uh, zon, a word that Lloyd translated as magical expedition. When a healer changes into a lion, only other healers can see him. To ordinary people, he is invisible. So it's clear, you know, that uh, for the for the sand bushman, you know, the the transformation of the shaman into a lion uh, is really, in many ways, best understood as a spiritual event rather than a literal event. Naturally, of course. Uh, we read here, Lorna Marshall learned that malevolent, malevolent shamans, too, can take the form of lions and fly through the air. The Naro San take this idea further. They use the phrase Zamtizi to denote a shaman. It means lion's eye and refers to a shaman's supposed ability to travel across the sky as a shooting star. When a nocturnal trance dance is taking place, lions are often heard roaring in the darkness beyond the firelight. Gunther, an explorer, caught the essence of these unnerving moments when he said their roars add to the sense of awe and dread that hangs over people at this moment of transformation in the dancer's experience as it complements mystical peril from spirit beings with potential real danger from actual animals. In the Kalahari today, when sand people refer to an eerie or strange time, such as an eclipse, they use the expression, lions are walking. So, you know, this is, uh, again, I can't help but think of, uh, you know, parallels further to the north. Uh, of course, shooting stars in the Quran, and as well as within medieval Christian thought, were believed to be uh, falling angels, right? In the Quran, it explains that the demons would fly up, they'd press their ear up against the firmament of heaven, and then when the angels would catch them, they'd cast them down, and that was the shooting star you'd see. And so here again, you have this this idea of the shamans, you know, as shooting stars. Uh, here on the left, 
you can see a Sand Bushman who, who seems to perhaps be midway or, or partially into transformation into a lion. He has this lion's tail. And uh, you can see that he's clearly entered a state of trance. He's got uh, perspiration coming from his armpits. Perhaps his nose is bleeding. And uh, he's hunched over at a 90-degree angle, indicative of the pain of his of his diaphragm contracting as he enters an altered state of consciousness. So it seems as if here we have an image of a transformation. Now, this particular image is the one we're going to go into detail studying today. Uh, this is the original image. It's, it's fairly well preserved, but unfortunately, uh, this photograph isn't the best. And so we're mostly going to rely on this copy that was done. This is a, uh, uh, a hand-drawn copy, and uh, I've color-coded this to represent the distinctions that we see in the various figures here uh, in this in this in this panel in this panel of rock art. This panel shows a running lion with whiskers and teeth. It is pursuing ten human figures, highlighted here in red. Any impression that this is a depiction of a real lion chasing real hunters in a real incident is soon dispelled. The whole scene is filled with indications as to the supernatural context of the event. Even at first glance, the unnaturally long feline tail suggests that we are not looking at a realistic depiction of a lion. There is much more in the panel. Two of the fleeing figures bleed from the nose and are therefore clearly in trance. They look back over their shoulders at the lion. The long lines that emanate from the tops of their heads, almost certainly represent their spirits leaving their bodies via what the sand believe is a hole in the top of the head. So you can see the lines depicted here. Unfortunately, in this image up above, uh, they're difficult to make out. You can kind of see them here. It's quite faint, though. Uh, down below, though, we can look at these images, and we can clearly see the lines being painted. You know, you, this uh, this depiction here, you can definitely make out the lines and... Uh, you know, as you as you examine the image, you realize these lines are making their way towards this crack in the rock face, which again points us back to our earlier lectures where we talked about the the rock surface serving as a membrane between this world and the spirit world. And so here at the at the larger image, you get a better sense of this uh, this crack in the rock face, and, and you know you can faintly make out the lines here making their way towards this opening. So this is clearly an event which is taking place in the spirit world. And I think it's also important to point out, you know, that uh, these figures with these lines, you know, coming out of the top of their head, this is clearly a look back to what we talked about in the earlier presentations uh, with this, you know, this fontanelle at the top of the head and the significance of the spirit leaving the body through the top of the skull. Above the fleeing human figures are at least 16 transform figures that have been called trance bucks or flying bucks with antelope heads. They are part human, part antelope, and depict the benign transformation of a shaman into an antelope coupled with the entrance of, with the experience of flight in trance. So you can see these, these are a couple, this is probably one of the better images. You can see quite close up here that this figure clearly has the head of an antelope and appears to be flying. And, uh, you know, this is uh, it's pretty radical stuff. I mean, one of the other things that's worth pointing out, uh, as the shamans would enter trance, they would often pull their arms towards their backs. They would sort of lean their arms back. And uh, this was one of the ways that they would they would sort of invoke potency when they would. There's one quote in the book that says, "When we ask God for potency, we put our arms behind our backs, sort of like you you can see here with this figure, his arms 
are behind his back and he's sort of leaning backwards, you know, so this suggests that this is a shaman who is uh, invoking potency, invoking Nam. It says here, in summary, we can say that in this image we have a vivid representation of a spiritual encounter between a lion that may have belonged to one group of people and the terrified fleeing, fleeing shamans of another group. There is little doubt that the painter of this panel spelled out what more laconic painters implied by their depictions of solitary lions. As sand shamans often say, the spirit realm can be a fearful place, not something with which ordinary people should meddle. Now, I really want to stress here, this is again a reference to what we talked about in the previous lecture, right, when we talked about belonging, right? So this is a reference to the fact that the, the shaman has possessed or taken possession of a of the body of a lion. I just enjoyed this. This is a a modern uh, rendering, an artistic rendering of what, you know, a depiction of what it might look like for a sand bushman to turn into a lion, you know. This stuff really captures our imagination, you know. I, I'm reminded when I was a kid there was a book called Animorphs, and, and still to this day we make films that talk about men turning into animals, and, uh, you know, this is, this is something that by no means has been lost or forgotten. I mean, this is, this is as much written into our biology as anything. And, uh, that's really the powerful thing about these myths is that they're never going to go away. I mean, even if we forget these traditions, they crop up through visions, dreams, even our creative impulses and our favorite books and movies. I mean, these, these things are written in our blood. It's really, you know, impressed upon our very soul in a certain sense. Uh, I really appreciated this this analogy here. Uh, Dr. David Lewis Williams quotes 1 Peter 5, verse 8, which says, Be sober, be, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So by no means has this kind of imagery and metaphor been lost. You know, this is this is still very much relevant to uh, to our religious communities even to this day. So next, what I want to do is transition a little bit, and uh, we're going to just touch on a particular chapter, particularly chapter 5 in our next book, uh, The Mind in the Cave. And the reason that I'm uh, sort of jumping ahead like this is because there's chapter 5 in The Mind in the Cave is in some sense a very quick, uh, rough and dirty summary of deciphering ancient minds. The, the work of the Sandbushman and David Lewis Williams' study of the Sandbushman plays an integral role in the in the thesis that he presents in this book, and so it's uh, it's given its own chapter. But because we went through this in so much detail, I just wanted to take a couple of details out of that chapter that we don't find in deciphering ancient minds and present them here. And so that way, when we get over into the mind in the cave, we can really just skip right over chapter five. But this is really best uh, best put here. This is most relevant to this subject matter. Uh, Specifically, what, what we're going to get into here is this image right here, which is referred to as a fortification illusion or a migraine scotoma. Now, for some of you, you may be looking at this and going, wait a minute, I know what that is. Uh, this is a fairly common phenomenon, a fairly common uh, form of hallucination that most often uh, migraine sufferers will experience. And they will see this kind of a, a crescent-shaped uh, ring that will appear. It, it's a spot of invisibility. You can't you can't see through it. 
Uh, it really blocks out your vision. It'll sometimes be filled with uh, geometric patterns, lines, bright colors, zigzags, different things. You know, it, it differs from person to person. And uh, oftentimes it's accompanied by a dot, a kind of black hole that uh, that's sometimes described. But it's essentially a hallucination that's more often than not associated with migraines. And you, you may be asking yourself, well, you know, what does that have to do with anything, right? It says here, this, per- this percept... Uh, comprises two elements, an outer arc characterized by iridescent flickering bars of light, or zigzags, and within the arc, an, a lunate area of invisibility, a black hole, so to speak, that obliterates uh, vertical imagery. So, I just want to play this short clip. This is actually done by uh, an optometrist, and he's he's explaining this experience of seeing this uh, migraine scotoma, or this uh, uh, fortification illusion. So, we'll give this a quick watch. So number one is what is an aura and what does it look like? And a visual aura is basically a blind spot that grows and changes over time. It usually starts off as this kind of a small gray spot in your vision, kind of like an after image after staring at a bright light and then turning away from it. That little after image spot starts to grow and turns into almost a C or crescent moon shape. And then it starts to kind of give a flickering appearance, kind of like a strobe light. It can also start to have like a colorful zigzag pattern. And some people even say that it's a colorful, almost kaleidoscope in their vision. Now this can be really frightening, right? Uh, anytime you're experiencing something new like this, uh, especially for the first time, you may even think that you could be going blind. And I know that when I was in third grade and I first experiencing this, that's exactly what I thought was going on. But these sort of visual experiences do recover. So after about five to 10 minutes, uh, these little kind of auras start to dissipate and go away. However, they can last up to a full hour, making it difficult to do things like driving, or even reading a book with the affected eye. So, as I mentioned, you know, you may be asking yourself, well, why are we getting into this? Well, it just so happens that this is another thing which we find depicted in Sam Bushman rock art. And uh, here you can see a wonderful example. And, uh, you know, we find a number of these. These were at first referred to as formlings, and many people were confused as to what they might represent. But it seems pretty compelling now that... uh, that this is in fact a form of this uh, migraine scotoma. But what's odd is you may ask yourself, well, what are, you know, Sam Bushman all suffering from terrible migraines? Well, oddly enough, this appears to be symptomatic of their means of entering an altered state of consciousness. So through the process of the trance dance, I mean, this is clearly putting an immense uh, amount of pressure on their physiology. I mean, their noses bleed, they perspire quite uh, radically, I mean, you know, the, there's an, a tremendous pain in the diaphragm. I mean, this is not an easy process. They've they've mastered some kind of religious method uh, to manipulate the body in such a way, perhaps through breathing exercises, the rhythmic chanting, you know, even maybe even visualizations. I mean, we, I'm sure there's a lot more to this than than we're told. Uh, a lot that probably is only passed from shaman to shaman. But uh, clearly, whatever is being employed here uh, is is stressful enough on the body that it's causing this hallucination. But what's especially interesting is the way that the Sand Bushmen understand this. When this was presented to the informants, they, they speak of it as being associated with the honeybee. Now, you can see this image on the left. This is what uh, oftentimes honeycombs or, or beehives look like in the Drakensberg Mountains. These are 
you know, the honeycombs are protruding. Uh, this is down inside the rock face, right? So the bees will build these, these comb-shaped uh, structures and note the geometric patterns uh, in the combs, right? The, the, the geometry of all the hexagons joined together in many ways resembles our fortification illusion. And as well, you've got this curved shape. And what's more is that a lot of people describe that when they see this hallucination, they will hear a buzzing in their ears or a ringing in their ears, which the sand bushman understood to be the spirit of the bee. So this this vision, seeing this curved migraine scotoma, was the nom. It was the potency of the honeybee. And it says here, the sand believe that the beads are messengers of the great god. Bees and honey both have nom. Like other strong things, honey transforms people. For the Zam, uh, honey was also a creative substance. Kagan used it in his creation of the first eland. I should mention as well, uh, these quotations here that you see in green, these are referring to these quotes as coming from the mind in the cave, whereas our original yellow refers to uh, deciphering ancient minds. So if you're wondering why those uh, page references and chapter references are in green, it's because it's referring to the other book. Uh, disappearance into an area of invisibility and transformation into an animal are associated with entry into the vortex that leads to deeper trance. Now this reference to a vortex, this is something we'll get into more detail with in uh, The Mind in the Cave, but essentially what it's saying here is that this vision of seeing the potency of the honeybee, seeing this scotoma, this uh, migraine scotoma, is an indication of coming into the spirit world, right? It seems that some painters took the area of invisibility within the arc of the navicular and toptic phenomenon to be an entrance into the spirit world. Now, I should point out navicu navicular and toptic phenomena is just a very fancy term for this, uh, for this curved shape that we see here. To be an entrance into the spirit world and a gateway to transformation. In this way, the area of invisibility paralleled the vortex. So here again we have a reference to the vortex. But essentially what's being uh what's being explained here is that for some of the images that we see, we see this this curved uh, migraine scotoma and then we see spirit beings coming through it. So this this hallucination, this this area of invisibility where the the person, the hallucinating person, can't see anymore, was really understood to be a, an entrance, and and the shaman is is going into that entrance, going into the spirit world through this hallucination. I mean, it's it's incredible, right? Because I mean, especially I think if if you've had this experience, I mean, I personally have never seen this this particular hallucination, but I, you know, I can kind of imagine it, and uh, I think we all have experienced, you know, some kind of entoptic phenomena, whether it's you know, maybe you hit your head or whatever the case may be. You know, you close your eyes at night. You see those entoptic phenomena in your eyes, right? You get a sense of what this this kind of an experience can be. And to look at something like that and to not just see that as, you know, mental noise or brain noise, but to really see it as a real thing and then to interact with it and, and to uh, enter into it. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to see you know, the, the level of familiarity the sand bushmen have with, with the nature of their mind. It's really incredible stuff. Uh, we've looked at a lot of sand bushmen rock art. We've seen a lot of different imagery, and oftentimes it looks really primitive. And one might be tempted to conclude that the sand bushmen are themselves primitive people, you know, that they're incapable of really realistic high art. But here we can clearly see 
that the Sand Bushmen have no problem with re- with depicting realistic artworks, uh, you know, with with a tremendous level of beauty and sophistication. I mean, as a, as a painter myself, I look at this shading here over the over the shoulder of the eland. I mean, this is really well done. I mean, look at the detail around the eyes, the intricacy and, and precision of these horns. I mean, on a on a rough rock surface as well. I mean, as an artist, I'm impressed. I think, my goodness, you know, this is amazing what uh, what these artists were able to do, considering the the mediums they were working with. But uh, you know, this this brings up an important point as to the significance. Another level of significance that exists in this rock art. Remember we mentioned earlier that the rock is a membrane between this world and the spirit world. And in some sense, the, the paint is like an acid or, you know, it, it opens up that membrane. It allows some of the potency of the spirit world through. And, uh, you know, we can see that here. This is, uh, this is out of the mind in the cave and it talks about how the sand bushmen manufactured their paint. It says here, in the early 1930s, Mapote, a Sotho man who at the end of the 19th century had learned to make paint with the sand in their rock shelters. He explained that the sand greatly desire a special type of red hematite pigment known as kenken. It glistens and sparkles and could be found only in the high basalt mountains. Painters therefore had to undertake a pilgrimage to the towering heights of the Drakensberg, if they wished to use this pigment. Mapote said that a woman had to heat the Kang Kang out of doors at full moon until it was red hot. It was then ground between two stones until it was a fine powder. Then the ground Kang Kang was mixed with a highly significant medium, the blood of a freshly killed eland. A picture made with eland's blood was a kind of reservoir of potency. An old sand woman said... People were able to draw potency from some of the images. If a good person places his or her hand on a depiction of an eland, the potency locked up in the painting will flow into that person, thus giving him or her special powers. If instead a bad person touches the painting, his or her hand was believed to adhere to the rock face, and the person would eventually waste away and die. So these are not just paintings, you know, these are sources of potency. So as the shamans are entering trance, there's a pretty good chance that they would they would go over and they would touch these images to acquire the potency, to acquire the supernatural power of these animals. I mean, the fact that they're mixing the blood of an eland in with the paint says it, right? I mean, I don't think uh, blood makes a great medium for paint, right? They're They're putting that blood in there because they want to acquire the power, the potency of the eland. So that really concludes uh, our investigation into the sand bushman. I just want to draw your guys' attention to, to the question that we opened up with at the very beginning of this lecture series. It says, what is the purpose and function of prehistoric art and architecture? Now, we addressed that question, uh, you know, much earlier. I believe it was in lecture 1-B. But now we can give a much better answer, right? We can really answer this question thoroughly in saying that prehistoric art and architecture, like most great historical art and architecture, is primarily dedicated to recording experiences of the spirit world that are invisible to common eyes. In other words, rock art is a stained glass window. And this was an explanation given by Dr. David Lewis Williams in the book, and I have to admit uh, it really hit me because, you know, if you, being a Roman Catholic myself, right, uh, you, we learn about how stained glass windows 
played an important role in in the medieval church because most people were illiterate. There was no, you know, there were books, but no one could read except for only the priests and, you know, only the, the educated scholars. And so for most people, their education was through word of mouth or through looking at the stained glass windows and the various images, right? So the images in a church were used to communicate the stories, the, the, the legends, the, the history of their belief system, right? And, uh, you know, I chose this particular image, this, this image of John the Baptist baptizing Christ, because here we can clearly see up in the left-hand corner the dove that is said to have descended on the head of Christ as baptism. And I always suspect that this dove was a spirit dove. This was probably not a literal dove. Uh, it was likely a dove only seen by John the Baptist. And so here, you know, right up into the medieval period and even into our modern times, we're still doing this. We're still depicting uh, our experiences of the spirit world in art. It's really incredible. So I just want to close the lecture uh, by reading this short quotation. This is right at the end of deciphering ancient minds. It says here, fundamentally, the Juhuanzi do not confuse the sort of thinking that is required to conduct a successful hunt with the thinking that underwrites non-rational beliefs about animals that come to the fore in myths. The Juhuanzi realize that confusing the two ways of thinking would be disastrous. Non-rational beliefs play only a small role in people's inter practical interactions with animals. You know, this is a powerful quote because what it reveals is that even for the Juhuanzi and for the San Bushmen, it's, it's thoroughly understood that the spirit world is the spirit world and waking life is waking life. And to confuse the two can be, uh, terribly disastrous. And I, I kinda, I had to share this because, uh, I think a lot of people are tempted to think that, uh, aboriginals and, uh, you know, our ancient Paleolithic ancestors are stupid or simple-minded. And uh, it's clear that, that really the opposite is true. These are incredibly intelligent people. And in this case, in the case of confusing spiritual truths with literal truths, they, in many ways, are more intelligent than your average North American today. I mean, how many uh, religious people take their, their religious metaphors much too literally you know, so ironically, we can see here that these prehistoric, you know, Stone Age uh, level people are, are in some ways more intelligent than people living in the modern world. Right. So I really wanted to close with that as a as a real hat tip to uh, to the to the San Bushmen and really to all Aboriginal communities to say, you know, we've done a real injustice to these groups by typecasting them as primitive when really. I think if this presentation has proven anything, the, the real truth is we in the modern world have a tremendous amount to learn from these people. And uh, in the next lecture series, we're going to see a little bit more of that. So I look forward to seeing you guys there. I, I want to remind you again, please head down into the description. Make sure you fill out your quiz for this uh, for this lecture. And uh, feel free to leave something in the comments. Let me know if you guys are enjoying these or if you have critiques or questions or whatever the case may be. But uh, yeah, thanks for watching.